Welcome to At The Intersection. I'm Marion. And I'm Brian. And this is a podcast about policy, culture, identity, and how all of those things intersect. Yeah. And today we talked to Edgar Villanueva, who is an well, he's a philanthropist and he's an author and he wrote this incredible book, Decolonizing Wealth, just about how like we have to talk about wealth in this country and we have to talk about reparations in this country and we have to talk about the harm that all of this massive wealth building and wealth hoarding has caused. Yeah. And I think it's a really cool conversation to have coming off of our last couple of episodes talking mm-hmm. about just like colonialism, colonialism, wealth inequality, yeah. <laughs> all those things. <laughs> Um, and, and particularly he's talking about being a person of color, mm-hmm. um, being a native person mm-hmm. in this space um, and kind of what his role is and how he sees his role um, in terms of addressing inequality through, um, you know, being a part of this institution that's built off of this massive white wealth. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think without further ado, let's just get to the interview. Can you maybe just talk to us about um, kind of like your journey to this work, specifically like how you came to be in philanthropy um, and kind of uh, how um, your values and and all these things kind of align to do what you do today? Just a small, tiny question. <laughs> sure. Uh, so I'm a native of North Carolina, uh, enrolled in the Lumbee tribe. And grew up in a family, a small family, single mother, only child and growing up. And um, our church was a very central part of our lives. And as a part of that experience, I, I learned sort of through church, um, the idea of serving community, giving back. My mom was very involved in, in various ministries in the church and kind of drug me along with her to participate. So um, I felt a calling very early on in my life to be a person of service and mm-hmm. felt very fortunate that I, despite the circumstances that I grew up in, that I kind of was one of the ones that made it, you know, uh, the first yeah. one I graduated from high school in my family, the, the only person still really, um, the only one to go to college and so, uh, I knew that I had the responsibility to give back and to to help. Initially, I uh, went to seminary right out of high school in Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, yeah. A whole, God, a <laughs> lifetime ago. Um, but at the time, I was really driven to, you know, again, oriented towards service. And the church was the only platform that I knew. I didn't know about nonprofits. I didn't know about philanthropy, of course. Um, and I really didn't even know about community organizing or, or any of those types of spaces. And so off to seminary, I went and I realized pretty uh, early on and definitely by the end of my time there that full time ministry in the church was not for me. <laughs> and so um, I finished school there and came back to North Carolina and I just stumbled into this nonprofit. I needed a job. I found an ad in the newspaper and um, started working at this nonprofit that did uh, sort of health justice work. We uh, supported and shared information around the country around HIV and AIDS, women's health issues, immunizations. And that's really the the space where I got more politicized because I, I realized that there were people in this country who did not have vital information to survive, you know, to take care of their bodies, 
um, because they were women or people of color, LGBT, and um, just really got uh, super passionate about uh, sort of uh, health equity issues. So I worked in this nonprofit for a number of years. Um, I ended up going back to Chapel Hill and getting a degree in public health. Um, I got my master's in healthcare administration. And out of grad school, that's where I really had this crossroads of kind of deciding. Uh, I was being recruited by huge healthcare systems and Deloitte and, you know, really well-paying consulting firms. And I was tempted. I went to the Mayo Clinic and interviewed because, um, you know, I had student loans and I, you know, I needed, you know, kind of... (laughs) lured by the the big jobs but i always felt like something wasn't quite right i was like do i want to make you know make money for a hospital every day is that my future mm-hmm. and uh so my uh right after my second year of grad school i got recruited by a foundation the kb reynolds charitable trust in winston-salem and uh, i knew nothing about the organization i knew nothing about philanthropy um, I was not thinking of Winston-Salem as the place that I wanted to go live. Um, I was thinking a larger city. Um, but I, I went to this plantation uh, <laughs> to interview for this job. And there was just something about it. They had a new president who was a Black woman who really sold her vision to me of the change that she was looking to make. And it had a mission of improving the health of low-income people in the state. And uh, so I kind of blindly um, accepted the job. Uh, it paid well, you know, yeah. jobs pay pretty well. And uh, so that's, that's kind of how I got into this space. And um, I had a great experience the first couple of years. I all of a sudden had a lot of power and privilege and I was welcomed to spaces and at tables that I, you know, had never uh, experienced before. And the work was extremely rewarding. Um, but after a number of years, I realized things were not really what they seemed in this space. And I began to internalize um, a lot of that and the sort of forced assimilation into this extremely white dominant culture and um, a privilege in philanthropy and um, just internally, internally began to struggle with that. And I saw that that struggle was something shared by a lot of people in this work. And um, I collected those stories and um, really uh, sort of my path to healing from that is how this book came to be. Gotcha. I, you know, I got to say um, the line or the phrase, I went to this plantation to interview for it. Yeah. <laughs> that's usually not the beginning of the blow up. That's usually the end of the story. Like, right. <laughs> and then I wound up on this plantation. Right. You know, I, it's, it's really funny. I, you know, I, I try to call things exactly as they are. Um, I get that question quite a bit. And with the book, uh, I, I use a plantation analogy for the first mm-hmm. half of the book. And, um, I, I, you know, and I tell folks quite literally, I worked on a plantation and every day, you know, driving to work in my little Honda Civic that I have finally paid off and in this beautiful estate that was now the property of Wake Forest University and a lovely park and a museum now. And uh, I could not help but think about the folks who had worked in those fields to help this family generate this wealth. And when I faced the challenges of trying to move money into black communities um, in North Carolina, I'm like, you know, I was just like really frustrated by that, knowing um, the contribution that ancestors had made to help generate that wealth. 
Um, And then, you know, of course, the analogy, a lot of us in this space for years kind of refer to ourselves as the house slaves and, you know, we're working on the plantation, working for the man. And so I thought that 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 uh, analogy was like extremely appropriate to kind of bring forward in the conversation, because that's exactly sort of kind of nicely describes the experience for many folks. Yeah. Well, how does that I mean, I feel like that sort of that analogy makes sense for us. I mean, it makes sense for like people of color who are in these institutions, but how does it hit like white people in these institutions when you use that analogy? You know, it's, it's been really interesting. I think, um, the, the white folks have really embraced this book in ways. It's probably one of my, my biggest surprises. Um, I'm, I'm very happy about that because I did write the book with the lens that uh, I'm kind of thinking of my audience as the mm-hmm. you know, wealthy white men who are sitting in these seats of power who need to be educated, right. engaged, um, and to do things differently. Um, and so um, I didn't hold back, um, but I did my best in the book to couch my approach in love um, and to talk about all of these issues in a way that brings everyone in, including white people, to help mm-hmm. white people understand that, uh, you know, they have been harmed and traumatized by subscribing to false notions of white supremacy as well. And so I, I mean, I'm getting invited into really even conservative kinds of spaces where white people are wanting to have these conversations. And, you know, I never thought of myself as a person to help, you know, that would be helping white people on their journey necessarily. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, but there is something about, um, you know, the language in the book and the frame that I'm hearing from a lot of folks, they have never quite understood it this mm-hmm. way, or they're seeing it differently for the first time in time in their lives. And so I celebrate that, you know, like if this is a tool that helps white people on their journey um, to become a woke white people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah, I would love to talk more about that just because you have in the book, in the second half, the seven steps of healing. And the first one is grieve. And this is honestly the one that gave me the most trouble because mm-hmm. I had to like wrap my mind around the fact that, you know, obviously we have to grieve as people who have been and continue to be harmed by these systems. But the idea of giving space to oppressors and to colonizers to grieve their own harm and their own history is just like really difficult. So I guess, can you talk more about why that's, why you feel like that's necessary? You know, so I I think what I've learned is that sort of white dominant culture um, is oriented for quick solutions. Like, as mm-hmm. soon as I do these talks, there's always a white person who stands up and says, tell me exactly what I need to do right now. Like, we want to fix this and we want to move on, right? <laughs> and so, um, you know, I even kind of resented having these seven steps of healing because it just sort mm-hmm. of minimizes, you know, the process. Right. And I went back and forth kind of with my editor around having having seven steps. But again, remembering my audience and needing this to be, um, these concepts to be digestible in some way. Um, so I think that the uh, the idea of grieving for me is, um, like you said, we've had, we are very familiar with grief often in communities of color, um, but in, in white communities, uh, a lot of folks there are not processing emotion, they're not coming to terms with history. Um, I don't think as a country that we're really going to move forward and really deal with our, our history um, around race until we actually fully understand and look at it straight in the eye 
um, and feel the pain of it all. We've been feeling that, but everyone has not done that work. And so um, I don't think that any action to quickly jump to uh, solutions around um, implementing, you know, racial equity policies and all these things that foundations are doing, which is great. And I celebrate that. But unless real work, real transformational work has happened in our hearts and in our lives, we're not going to move forward in a way that is quite as authentic. It's going to be about, oh, we just want to fix this. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to be much more whole and uh, we're going to heal, heal from this if we actually let it work its way through our bodies. And so that's, that's really the process. And I've talked with white people who have done that work, who have studied their genealogy and understood their family's orientation to race and to money. Um, and when they find out like well-meaning white people, they have money. And then they find out that they are, you know, people own slaves in their family. Um, it's something that is really disheartening and, um, you have to, um, feel bad about it. It's kind of like, you know, teach kids, if you're not sorry, if you're not really sorry, you don't feel bad about what you did. You may say you're sorry, but you're, you're going to do it again. Or you're going to, you're going to keep, <laughs> keep acting up. And so we want you to like genuinely feel uh, sorry and uh, remorseful about the history. And, um, and then we know the actions moving forward are going to be a lot more uh, genuine. And that's, you know, uh, other countries have done processes like, you know, Canada had a, a, you know, a decade of truth and reconciliation where indigenous people there told their stories and people just listened. And it was like a sad, sad decade of hearing about all of this trauma. But that needed to happen before there was, um, you know, action to really begin to repair that. So I'm a bit... I'm going to take, make it a, a bit practical because um, you're speaking a lot into kind of what I feel like I've experienced, um, especially in, in white progressive nonprofit spaces. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, um, you know, it's, it feels like a lot of this work um, um, is, is both initiated by and facilitated by and really fueled by people of color. And that's really exhausting emotional work. And so um, I think there's, you know, at least I found in my personal life, there's um, decisions I have to make about, um, and I don't like saying like what, you know, not who's worth it. I think people are, you know, people are human beings and everybody's worth all the effort that, that is available to them, but at what expense? And so how do, how do we make decisions about like strategic decisions about like this person or this group or this organization is ready and we have the emotional capacity um, to actually be, to be with them, to walk with them to wherever they, they need to go. Yeah, that's a great question. I I think about that a lot. And um, I don't know if I have the answer, but these are some of my thoughts about it. One, I don't know if as people of color that we will ever be free from the responsibility of having to educate people. Uh, We have, this is something that we think about all the time. um, And we're just so much more enlightened about it. And so, you know, I I wished I can say I wrote this book and I did my part and I'm done. <laughs> um, and, but I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, and especially as a Native person, I have to do what we call Indian one-on-one like every day. Like just, oh, yes, yeah. people exist. Yes, you know, before I can talk to anyone about the, a fabulous project or like whatever, I'm like, you know, yeah, you know, yes, there are more than 500 tribes. No, I don't know this Indian person that you know in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> All that stuff, right? So, um, 
But, you know, on a deeper level, I, you know, we, we hold so much knowledge and I have just kind of, uh, retired to a position of my culture is about open source sharing. And it's just going to be for generations. It's been this way, you know, probably will for generations to come that I'm in the position to share, to educate, to engage. Now we have to know when we need to check out because there are days where I'm like, I can't do it today. I can't (laughs) like, I can't, you know, we, uh, last week when there was an incident with, at the indigenous people's March with the, the, the kids with the hats on, yeah. um, I was like, um, I, I don't even want to talk to a white person today. I can't, um, if someone says the wrong thing, I'm just going to pop up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have to really, uh, that's why that self-care factor is so important. We have to, uh, know when we need to check out. Um, and then also, um, I always say that white people need to go collect their people. So I'm doing my part. I'm thankful for white allies who are doing this work. Um, and maybe at some point their, their movement will become so strong that it requires less energy on our part. Um, but yeah, unfortunately I think that we have to continue to do this work. Um, I will say that, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, we all come to this work from different places and different vantage points. For me, you know, working in philanthropy, which is super white, super privileged. And I don't know how I got to this place where I'm like talking to the people in the 1%, right? Like I, I yeah. in this place now, um, even in like three years ago, I would not imagine that I'll be having conversations with the people that I talk to now. And so I just have accepted this is my calling. God has put me here for some reason. Um, and there's some approach and some way that I have of communicating with these folks that is effective, right? And so, um, you know, I am not a person who often um, participates on the front line in direct action. I'm there in solidarity. I occasionally show up. Um, but that is, I'm not built for that. That yeah. um, and so I, I feel like I'm doing my part in this space, which unfortunately requires me to spend a lot of time with white people doing it. Um, and I also recognize I have light skin privilege. I have, you know, um, I'm Native American, which may be less threatening or more acceptable for some of these people to talk to. And so I, all of those are just sort of, I guess, gifts or whatever that I'm using to do work in that space for such a time as this. I may not always be in that space. Um, And so I think, you know, the conversations and the people that I'm meeting with, these are people who would maybe likely not sit down and have a conversation with Black Lives Matter. I mean, maybe Mm -hmm. some of them are getting to a point. Um, And so it's a very different approach, hopefully getting to the same type of um, outcomes because we need all of the above. And so, yeah, we've got to do the work, all of us, but we got to take care of ourselves and know when we need to be immersed in our community to heal, to revive. Um, but, uh, unfortunately I think it's just, um, just the way it is. (laughs) Yeah. No, I guess, I mean, you did say that you felt some conflict about putting the seven steps in there, but I mean, you do talk about how it has to be circular or it has to be a spiral and it doesn't like, it can't just be this linear, like, okay, I've gone from steps two to three and now I'm just going to, now I'm done. So I feel like, yeah, this work is sort of a constant thing and we have to sometimes we do have to step back and say like, all right, I need to move to like a different point in this, in this circle. Yeah. Yeah. absolutely. I mean, even for, I mean, people of color, we, uh, like I can tell in myself, right. That, um, 
I am beginning to think, you know, I'm, I'm similar, I'm assimilating, I'm giving up something to, you know, uh, in the space that I work in that rewards that, right. It, mm-hmm. it, it awards the status quo. The more white I am, the more successful I'm going to be in this space. And, um, it's hard sometimes, like I, I hear a little voice, a little voice in my ear, or some internalized stuff kicking up occasionally around how I'm showing up in this space. Right. Which is why it blows my mind that people are loving this book and philanthropy. Cause like, I, <laughs> this is, I'm like, you know, I was like, here it is. F it. I'm just going to come out with it all. Right. Um, <laughs> but I do think it's, uh, you know, it, it is, uh, all of us have this work to do and it's, 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 it's for a lifetime. I mean, as much as I'm talking about this and thinking about this every single day, um, I feel myself, myself relapsing often into like different states and ways of thinking because of the biases, because of who's controlling the media and the images and the, so water that we drink is this white dominant culture and this mm-hmm. way of thinking that we have to constantly unlearn and unpack. And it's really hard when, um, you know, we don't hold the power and the resources for who's, you know, who's contaminating this water. And so it it feels like uh, I heard someone describe this work of equity as uh, sort of like uh, walking backwards on a moving sidewalk, you know, the sidewalk (laughs) airport, right? Like you're walking backwards. When if, if we do nothing and we just stand still, we're going to be going in the wrong direction. So we have to like mm-hmm. intentionally um, train ourselves to just like keep working and pushing in the opposite direction. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a process for all of us. Yeah. It is interesting though. I mean, like you talk about like in this conversation and in the book as well about the white savior complex that you run into a lot and how people in power in particular, like, this is just sort of reflective of a jacked up power dynamic in philanthropy and in nonprofits. So how have you found a way to sort of break through that power dynamic and say like, Hey, like maybe you need to share some of this power or maybe you don't need to be the one talking right now. Oh God, it's hard. Um, my strategy is to have that white friend who really gets it and I can get them to mm-hmm. say it. <laughs> <laughs> like, we need to build. Um, uh, you know, it, it's super, super hard. There's so many well-meaning white people um, and, you know, who really think they're trying to help and, you know, sometimes are helping. I mean, truth to be told, we need their money. We need their resources often for this work. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, so many are, are blinded by their privilege. And I, I'm with white folks who say all the right buzzwords and, you know, the mm-hmm. progressive talk about it, um, but they still are the ones who are talking the most in the room and, um, you know, are, are in, in many ways colonizing, <laughs> you know, yeah. like colonizing our, our, our culture and our way of doing it in some ways. So um, I think it's one of the m- most challenging aspects Um Fortunately, you know, I, I do think there are more white people who are understanding that like the more we're kind of putting that out there and are beginning to hold each other accountable. So that's my strategy. When I do uh, racial justice work in, in a lot of these institutions, I always have a white woman on my team if possible um, because they're, you know, for a lot of reasons, but, uh, you know, often it's a lot of white women who work in these spaces and hearing this from another white woman is helpful but also some of those uh, some of those types of calling out uh, might go better if they are the person doing that work. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's it's tough. 
that stuff. You know, we we are really just plagued in this sector and sort of even the social justice sector with people of color who have internalized oppression and then there's mm-hmm. white saviors. And some days I don't know what's worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what you mean. I've talked to some people that I'm like, oh my God, like the plantation mindset is really strong here. Like this is, I don't know if I can save you really. Like, but I mean, to that, to that point, um, and, I, and, I, and this is one of the things I really appreciated about kind of the intro to the book. And um, it's just a reminder that like we are all, and I'm not sure exactly how it was phrased, but this this idea that we are all negatively impacted by white supremacy culture, like it 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 hurts us all, um, and so we're all in this together. Um, but like to the point of um, identifying allies and working with allies, um, that's something. I mean, that takes a lot of personal work, right? To because um, there's a lot of harm and a lot of, and, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself. A lot of trial myself. and there's error. A lot yeah. of, also, there's just a lot of um, there's a lot of um, anger, right? That that comes with these stories that. We, you know, at least from that I've received from my grandparents. And I mean, and so there takes some, it takes some work in like shifting that um, and working through that. And so actually, I, I would, I would love to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, what are, what, what have you seen as, as positive examples of uh, people of color being able to um, kind of come to terms with what it means to be working within this, um, this kind of oppressive fishbowl um, while also doing the work to like liberate others. So like, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a lot going on at the same time. Yeah. It's people of color. You know, I, I think it's so important that we have accountability with each other as people of color. Uh, one accountability with our community and then just accountability with each other. I, um, I don't know. People ask me sometimes like, how do you stay grounded or stay humble or whatever? And I'm like, well, one, I'm not Beyonce. Like, I mean, like, <laughs> a little bit of success here, but it's not, I mean, I'm realistic <laughs> about it all, but you know, I, I, I know where I'm from. I talk to my mom almost every day on the phone, one phone call home. And it's all like my reality of who I am, where I'm from is like right there. And so it's, it's, uh, really hard for me to get too too far away from that um but you know people of color holding each other accountable when i first got in philanthropy in north carolina um, i joined this network called epip which is still around um, emerging practitioners and philanthropy and epip was like this dope space for like younger grant makers and they had a program for like young grant makers of color and we went to this retreat. Um, I was in Detroit for like five days to so this like intense like conversations about power and money and philanthropy that uh, politicized me in a term, in like a crazy way. And the folks in in that space with me on that day are still some of my closest friends in this work um, because we make commitments to each other. If you ever start to lose your mind, I'm gonna call you out, right? Or, and please call me out. And so I, um, you know, I, I have friends in this work that have, you know, had conversations with me around, uh, is your social media becoming a little bit self-promoting? Like, don't forget, you know, mm. and I'm like, you know, and I don't take offense to that. Um, also folks that I can go to and say, oh my God, I had the craziest thought. I don't know where this is coming from. Some crazy stuff popped in my head. I started feeling a certain way about somebody. And I have on no basis, like the internalized oppression, like they were going to come for my position or power. I just need to like confess that. Right. <laughs> and so, um, 
to have people that can just keep you honest about that and, and tell you when you're acting out, because I think all of us at times do it. Like it's hard, you know, if you come from never having power or whatever, and everybody's just telling you that you're fantastic and putting you on a pedestal, occasionally, you know, you start thinking that you are it, right? I'm like, yeah. well, maybe not, you know? And so um, to, to you just got to have community to keep you grounded and to, um, you know, keep your head on straight. I've seen so many, it's really sad to me because there's so many people of color that I um, have loved and looked up to in this work who have lost their minds, right? I mean, like really lost their minds. And some of the most painful experiences for me in my career have been actually from other people of color who have been um, people that supervise me or have been my presidents or whatever, um, because you would think that uh, of all people, right, that we would be able to like have an understanding and we're in it for the same reasons. And that's not, that's not the deal. I mean, I had to, I had to settle and understand that if some people are here for the check and that's fine. Like, yeah, I want to push them to be like with me in this and, you know, right. Um, so yeah, so that, that stuff is so real, um, uh, finding that accountability and keeping that internalized oppression, um, in check and calling yourself out when you begin, um, when it starts flaring up and you hear these, that crazy voice in the back of your head, you know, like she might be trying to take my position, you know, or whatever. Right. <laughs> like, you know what? No, no. Like abundance mindset is where it's at. Yeah. I mean, like internalized oppression is so real and it's just so powerful that like sometimes you'll have somebody saying all this stuff and you're like, this isn't even about anything that anyone has said or like anything like this is just you've been triggered and like all this internalized stuff is now coming out. And it's just like, yeah, once you can recognize that it's less about you. I feel like depersonalizing in that scenario is also really helpful to be like, this isn't about me. Like, I'm just going to let this person go off and yeah, I can't help them. You know, I feel like, you know, I don't know. I've been thinking about this. I, I don't know what the solution is, but a lot of time in philanthropy, especially, but probably in the broader nonprofit sector, we have, you know, in some cases, more diversity. We're seeing more CEOs of color, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we are also seeing that um, in, in many cases, these people not uh, not doing good work, um, abusive leadership, acting a fool. And nobody will say anything, right? I was just talking to a sister last week about this. Like, there's a leader in this field who is just acting out and 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 kind of failing at their job. And you know, we're and we we were kind of laughing about the way it used to be in the church back in the day. You just went and gathered around a person. Like, if you knew somebody, was <laughs> right? Like, you didn't ask. Like, do you want to pray? You would just go gather around and have an intervention. <laughs> Pray for pray them down, and then you know nobody had to know about it, right? So we were saying, you know, what is our so what is our way of like? We want to call this person in and help help this person because the challenge is, if this person fails, it will be three generations before they bring in another person of color to run this organization, right? When a person of color fails in this business, it hurts all of us. And mm-hmm. if we can have that mentality, but there's so many layers of things. I mean, we have pride when we aren't, when we are struggling, we won't, we don't want people to know. Um, we have, we have white guilt, these white boards who hire the person of color and then they're afraid mm-hmm. to hold them accountable. And so we have got to figure out mechanisms among ourselves, I think, to really support each other and to hold each other accountable. Yeah. 
I do think that's, I mean, I think that that um, is definitely playing out, not just in like public sector um, and nonprofit sector, but like, I think we're even starting to see it a little bit in the, in the democratic primaries. Mm. Um, and so conversations around like, um, I mean, it's been a really interesting Twitter conversation at the very least <laughs> about, um, about, you know, where did we question Obama's blackness um, the same way that either Kamala Harris or mm-hmm. particularly her blackness is being yeah. questioned. And it's a really interesting kind of conversation. And it, I mean, what it'll probably lead to is like, how much can we call out and how much can we push for what we think we deserve versus risking, you know, risking losing it all for another right. four years or eight years or whatever, you know. And I, I think, yeah. yeah. I mean, I will say, having written about this at the time, like we definitely questioned Obama's blackness. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, it was a yeah, whole yeah. thing. And we are, I feel like we're questioning um, we're questioning Kamala Harris in a really different way. Like, I feel like we've said, okay, we kind of gave Obama a pass on like the policy stuff and, you know, now we're here. So we need to really, really question, you know, like where is she coming from on criminal justice and that sort of thing. Um, so it's, I feel like the conversation is different, yeah. but it is like, it's yeah. still very simple. Like the fact that, you know, oh, well, one of their parents is African and one of their parents isn't even black. So like, is she even black? Like that's, yeah, that all sounds very familiar. And it, it just makes me, I mean, the, the reason why it made me kind of think about this conversation is just like, it's that scarcity mindset of like, mm-hmm. we have so little that we can't, like we can't really have a real conversation about what little we have because we're so afraid to lose it. Right. And so, you know, we can't hold black CEOs accountable or we can't hold our black colleagues like accountable like we should because at least not publicly because we're afraid of, um, and I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a real fear, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel, um, you know, for, for a long time, if anyone said anything negative about President Obama, I, I, I it still kind of hurts my heart, you know, I'm like, no. Yeah. um, and, but in mixed company, like if it's like people <laughs> of color, like we can have this conversation. Cause I, again, I feel like it's like this accountability thing. But I'm like, no, we can't, we can't criticize him in front of white people because they'll never vote for a person of color again. Exactly. <laughs> so complicated. Yeah. <laughs> Publicly, it's like, yes, we can. And yes, we did twice. So that's all exactly. it is. <laughs> did you have any other questions you want to ask? No, I mean, I think... Um, if that's the case, and I want to talk about something super nerdy, because sure. um, you mentioned participatory budgeting in your book, <laughs> and it's something that I'm super excited about, because we, uh, we're we doing it in Durham, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. I'm on the steering committee, which I'm also super excited about. Um, but yeah, I would love to hear you talk about like what it is and how you feel like it relates to the idea of decolonizing wealth. Yeah, so... Um I think ultimately, you know, one, one for, for me, like the, the ultimate outcome for decolonizing wealth is that we close the race wealth gap, right? That's, that's mm-hmm. one thing. And then the process in doing that is that we're actually creating a, a democratic system and process like participatory budgeting um, that is allowing those who are most impacted to um, make decisions on where resources go. Um, I say in the book that we, the resilient, like those of us who have been at the margins, like we hold such wisdom and ideas around what we need to sustain and survive as a community. Um, But so um, often we're not at those seats. And so, um, you know, I think that that's one example of um, a process that's been created that's working in a lot of communities to um, engage us in having that power to decide. 
The other thing that I really like about participatory budgeting is that it actually is uh, sort of financially, it's creating some financial literacy for a lot of folks in our community um, that don't actually understand these processes. And mm-hmm. you know, I work in philanthropy, but there's so much more money moving through local government budgets. I mean, we're dropping the bucket in institutional philanthropy. And so um, I think behind every single social challenge that we're trying to solve in our communities, every social problem issue, when you dig far enough, you're going to find that it's all related to money. It's a financial mm-hmm. issue, right? And so um, when we are able to understand how capital is flowing through our communities and then get at the table and influence those decisions, that is so much power that we have. So, um, you know, I have, uh, you know, I've learned a lot. I mean, I I study finance in college. I've been moving money and the grant making side of things for a number of years. Um, But writing this book, I realized there's so much that I didn't, I don't know, and I still need to learn. Um, And there's so much happening. where money is concerned through local governments and other spaces that are, um, I just, you know, I want everyone to get politicized about like, Oh my gosh, like if you care about immigration reform, you need to know these things yeah. <laughs> Money is operating. Like why is immigration an issue? It's all about money, like affordable housing. It's all about money. And so that's, um, you know, I, I think that, um, people of color, we need to, uh, like learn these processes. There's amazing groups. Like that's why, I mean, Ryan at frontline solutions, like I learned so much and talking with him, he's like on top of like, these systems are doing amazing things. Um, and it's like a world I didn't even know existed. And I've been doing like good social justice work and philanthropy yeah. for, for like 20 years. And I'm like, wow, we actually know nothing. That's kind of how I feel <laughs> in this book. And so, um, so I love those types of programs that actually bring folks in, um, are engaging us, are educating us about the flow of capital and resources, and then, you know, giving us power to actually decide um, so it's a beautiful, you know, it's a beautiful process. Yeah. And what you said about like the wisdom of people who have been living on the margins, like there's this guy who works for the city, Chuck Manning, who I like low-key have a crush on. It's not a big deal. But he <laughs> said that people always talk about how they want positions to be, you know, like filled based on merit. And, you know, it should be about merit. It shouldn't be about race. It shouldn't be about gender. And he's like, okay, sure. It should be about merit, but let's expand the definition of merit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the fact that I am a justice involved man that's merit because I know how that system works. The fact that I am like very trusted in my community and I can talk to them the way that you all can't, that's merit too. So like we need to expand that definition and say, yeah, like being black does add merit to this position and being like a part of different communities brings merit. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's that the, the perspectives that we have, um, which I don't know, this is, this is so, so funny to me because like who I am and my perspective is just like, I was just born into my family and I never thought it was something that was some necessarily a value, right? Like I'm a country bumpkin from North Carolina, you know what I mean? <laughs> and what I'm finding in all in these spaces that are extremely white and privileged, they're looking at me like, wow, like I'm from another planet. And <laughs> it's feel like, uh, you know, it's very basic common sense. First thing that occurs to me in my mind are, are just kind of like, um, super informative to, to things. And they're, you know, they're moving like millions of dollars to things and not thinking through what feels like a common sense questions to me. Mm-hmm. And so I've really learned to appreciate the perspective that I have that I just got from my mama who doesn't even have, you know, she has a GD. 
Um, and, and so that lived experience and those relationships to community and where we come from and those stories um, bring so much value to those spaces that that's what, you know, that's really the power of diversity, you know, when we're mm-hmm. talking folks about diversity, it's not just having, um, you know, you know, folks ch- check in different boxes, but it's really those, those different lived experiences and perspectives that you're bringing into a space that's going to make it so much more rich. Um, and you have to be comfortable with allowing that to happen, right? For someone to completely mm-hmm. disagree with you or not understand anything that you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, through those conversations, you're going to get to uh, the best idea. Yeah. yeah. For sure. So, you know, one running theme of uh, our podcast um, is this idea of, um, you know, of reparations, uh, because, you know, ultimately, like, you know, we talk a little we talk a lot about just historical um, inequities and policies that have built these inequities. And so um, our solutions, we like our solutions to focus towards repairing at the root. Mm-hmm. Um, Step seven. <laughs> right. And so my question is, how do you want your reparations and or how do you want reparations at large? Are um, there just any thoughts you have on what, you know, if we're, if we're making our list, what should we put down for you? Yeah. Great question. I love that you guys are always talking about that because I feel like that's a word that makes people super nervous for some reason. Like it's oh like, yeah, it's that, right. <laughs> um, and you know, I I talk about redemption. I talk about repairing, but uh, reparations to me is is a uh, is such a deeper concept or word because it's it's more than just. Uh, it's more, it's more than just acknowledging. I mean, you are, you are, you're kind of like overcompensating in, in an effort to try to, to repair, heal what has been done. Uh, you know, I, I think reparations is happening in other places, right? So one, I know it can be done. It feels like this impossible, scary thing. In Germany, they have reparations for folks, for, for Jewish folks who were, you know, in internment camps. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are ways that you can actually create a process for it to happen. The reason that I think it's not happening in the U S and it's still a scary word and Congress is not even willing to entertain and have a conversation about the bill that has been brought so many times is because they haven't done the other work. Like they're not sorry. Mm -hmm. They haven't, if this country is truly sorry for, we haven't even heard I'm sorry, right? Like the first time that this nation ever apologized for slavery was President Obama in his second term. And it was also President Obama in his second term um, was the uh, first time we've ever had an apology to um, indigenous communities in this country. For mm-hmm. this and those were not major public proclamations. He just kind of put it into a speech. So we have not done our work as a country to truly be sorry and so I'm afraid, I feel like reparations is just a long ways off because we're not going to be willing to um, put the resources and the energy behind creating that system unless we are like, gosh, there's no other alternative. Like we have done something terrible that must be fixed or we feel terrible about it. Then you're going to be willing to um, actually create reparations. I think, I think reparations uh, for me is a, uh, it's a, it's an, it creates the opportunity for these kind of conversations. I'll, 
I think we need to push it and scare people and make them comfortable. But then we can back up and say, well, what has to happen for us to get to a place where we're comfortable having those conversations um, and to think about the realities of it? Because, I mean, the truth is, you know, I've, I've heard from a, a lot of folks. I know this isn't a shared sentiment for people of color, but, you know, it's not about actually getting a check, right, um, from mm-hmm. the government. Um, it is like about truly being seen and understood and, um, you know, and the history of trauma and what we've been through being fully acknowledged and knowing that there's a, you know, the government is really sorry about that. We want to see change happen. And so, you know, reparation is uh, in many sense just a... Um, you know, even if it happened and they started throwing money at the problem, that's not going to change if, um, and get us to a better place if we're not truly going through a process of deep healing and um, and understanding and reconnecting with each other as, as people. That's a dope that's answer. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'm carrying a little bit of that forward and thinking about like and articulating how I want my reparations. That, yeah. That grieving yeah. part. Yeah. yeah. But feel free. Like reparations know. includes being honest about what was done. And like, right. <laughs> we'll cite you. Right. It'll be fun. Oh, no. I mean, like, I'll, I'll still take the money. You know, I... You know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing the deep work with with funders, for example, to, like, have these yeah. conversations. But ultimately, I'm like, and go ahead and send the money, right? Like, (laughs) go ahead and write that check. Make sure it cashes. Exactly. (laughs) It's fun communities of color. You know, it's, uh, you can learn and go through the process of healing and grieving and all those Mm -hmm. things while, uh, while you're funding. So, right. (laughs) Don't stop doing that. Like do (laughs) that and also do it more. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Awesome. Well, that was all the questions we had for you. Um, Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we wrap up? Um, no, thank you for the opportunity. I really uh, enjoyed it. I appreciate the work that you guys are doing. Thank you for allowing me to talk about this book on your platform. Um, all of the proceeds from the book um, and from the sale of our Decolonizer t-shirts are supporting Native youth organizing. And awesome. so um, check it out, decolonizingwealth.com. And um, yeah, remember that uh, we are all related. And so I want to say thank you to you all as my relatives and for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you to you. This has been wonderful. Thank you. All right. That was a really great conversation with Edgar Villanueva. Yep. So if you want to find his book, you can visit www dot decolonizing mm-hmm. um, You can also buy a decolonizer shirt. So if you would like to be a decolonizer, all you have to do is buy a shirt. <laughs> Just buy this one shirt. It is a dope shirt though. Yes. Um, and the net proceeds are donated to organizations who support native youth. Yes. Which actually is decolonizing. That is. Yeah. So and if you don't want to buy the book on um decolonizingwealth.com, you can find it at your local bookstore. Um or I guess Amazon. If yeah, you I think we shady. shouldn't plug Amazon because we talk junk about Jeff Bezos like the other episode. Well, he is junk. I do have Amazon Primes. As do I. I just got some new toner delivered this morning. It's It's fine. (laughs) We're all colonized. We're all (laughs) trying to decolonize. It's fine. Yeah. So, Marion, where can you find our episodes? Sure. You can find our episodes on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Anchor. You can find us basically everywhere except for SoundCloud. That is still true in 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, you can also find us on social media 
on everything. We are at at the podcast. That's A-T-T-H-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can find our website at at dash the dash intersection.com. And I think that's all the places you can find us. Yeah. Make sure that you share, subscribe, mm-hmm. rate, and review. Yes. All of those things. Yes. Um, and the reviews really do help. Um, we can, you can also support us financially. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go to, actually, you can just go to our website. We have all of the information on there. So just go to at dash the dash intersection.com and you will find out how you can support us financially. Yep. Um, so yeah. And that is decolonizing also because we are a black independent podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening. Take it easy, y'all.